Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we meet a West Virginia high school student whose love of reading inspired her to bring books to young children. I have been constantly met with questions at every stop. There's always new stories and new faces, but always the same question. Can we take this book home? We also check in on people who were displaced by historic flooding in Kentucky. What's happening now that we're deep into winter? All the money that was donated and appropriated for the people, they haven't seen it. And advice for people navigating the difficulties of caring for aging parents. We are dealing with people who can no longer make day-to-day basic decisions for themselves. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Maybe you've heard about food deserts in Appalachia. These are places where there's not much access to fresh food, whether from grocery stores or farmer's markets. Well, there's another kind of desert in the region too. And this one affects literacy rates of young children. Book deserts are areas where there aren't libraries or bookstores. In these places, It's a lot harder for kids to get their first books and learn how to read. High school student Rania Zuri is working to change that. Zuri is a senior at Morgantown High School in West Virginia, and she's also the founder of an organization that provides books to preschool children across the state. Well, Rania Zuri, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the Literary Society and how it all got started. Yeah, so um, I'm the founder of the Literary Society, and I've always been a bibliophile my whole life. And I had a classics book club in middle school, but in ninth grade, I was working on a project to set up a small library for young girls when I learned about book deserts and the vast book deserts that exist in our own country. So I decided to combine my book club with my passion for ending the book desert into the Literary Society, which is a play on words, uh, literary and tea. And we are an entirely youth-led 501c3 nonprofit with the mission of ending book deserts for preschool children from disadvantaged families. And this is a very specific demographic, um, ages three to five from disadvantaged families, because at this age, the children are too young to check out a book themselves from the library and their families or caregivers don't necessarily have the disposable income to go out and buy books. And in this country, in this demographic, that means Head Start, because um, this is the federal preschool program for preschool children who come from households that live at or below the poverty line. And so that's for all of our Appalachian projects and West Virginia projects, we've been donating brand new, high quality, age appropriate books to preschool children Head Start programs and also foster care. You, you mentioned reading about book deserts and kind of seeing the stats on the page. What's it look like once you started to dig in and getting in, get into organizing to you know, combat book deserts? What did it actually look like on the ground? What have you learned about it from your experiences? Well, it's definitely been very different from just reading about it, as you said, statistics on a page. But as I went out and I traveled throughout the state, and I've been traveling throughout Appalachia and the most remote and rural parts of the region, and seeing that these children, they, they have they faces, they have stories, and they have they have backstories. I, I've been constantly met with questions at every stop. There's always new stories and new faces, but always the same question. Can we take this book home? And so it's always a delight for me to tell them that it was their book to take home and call their own. Oh, I love that. I love that. You talked about being a bibliophile yourself. And yeah, I can identify with that as, as someone who grew up obsessed with libraries myself. Can you tell me about um, your childhood and what your reading experience was like? And especially, I'm interested in those books that sparked your imagination and fired your passion for this work along the way. Oh, definitely. I, def- I wasn't a kid 
that had everything. I didn't have the latest toys or video games and things like that, but I always had books. And I was so fortunate enough to always have books in my life. I had old books, I had new books, I had children's books. And books, they're just so important to have as a child, as there really is a magic in reading. I know, like the wandering and bumping up against new characters and perspectives and schemes for tumbling out of tough places. And I truly believe that books are a ladder out of poverty. And so that's where kind of the inspiration of my mission came from, from my own background. I was I was the kid that always had a board book, a princess book, whatever. But what What have you read lately that's revved you up? I've been reading uh, Gogol and Kafka and Dostoevsky that has really, really been, um, those, those are my favorite uh, genres and authors at the moment. Oh, so cool. So you helped found the Literary Society, and then this past year, you know, almost a year ago, I guess, you all gifted a brand new book to every single preschool child in Head Start across West Virginia. Yes. That sounds like it took a lot of work. Oh, it did. It took a very long time, but I called this project the West Virginia Head Start Road Tour, and it was almost 7,000 brand new books in total. And I traveled to every single Head Start center in the state to donate these new books. And I held reading circles with the children. And it was a very special project because many of the children in Head Start didn't have any books at home. And I, all the titles were amazing, like Pete the Cat and If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. And it was my favorite part to give them the books. And then also some of the children, when I handed the books, they were jumping up and down from excitement. And so that was, that's truly was a, a delight. So now you've gone from bibliophile to mountain book ambassador. And now you're an author. I, tell us about this new book that you've been working on. Yes. So my latest initiative has, a musical aspect to it. I'm currently on the road again for a musical Head Start Appalachian book tour. And I wrote and illustrated a series of rhyming Appalachian themed children's picture books about an Appalachian hare named Billy Bob. And 100% of all the profits from the sale of the, each book in the series will go towards new books for children and Head Start in Appalachia specifically. And my first book in the series, it's called It's Mountain Music to My Ears. And it tells a musical adventure of a, the Appalachian hare named Billy Bob, who goes through the hills and hollers of West Virginia and he meets different Appalachian animals that each play different Appalachian musical instruments, like the spoons, the mountain dulcimer, the mandolin, the banjo, the washboard. But what's really been exciting about this is that I've been traveling to Head Start centers throughout the state for musical read aloud events. And so I will bring many bands in a box. So this band in a box, it will have many washboards, many banjos and many musical spoons for the children to play. And I found that the children truly enjoy the experience. So I, I like to say that we have some future Appalachian musicians. Oh, I love it. And, and yeah, it sounds like you're doing the true work of an author, which I understand is not so much writing as the promotion. That's the, that's the hard part. Would you mind reading your book? I you would love it? to. Okay, cool. Well, here's Rania Zuri reading her book, It's Mountain Music to My Ears. Young Billy Bob was an Appalachian hare who hippity-hopped without a care, although he sometimes stopped to breathe the fresh mountain air. One evening, Billy Bob heard a strumming. Strum, strum, strum. It sounded like a fine tune, so he followed the sound through the holler under the bright moon. Until he found a big black bear. The black bear's name was Jeb, and he wore a fine old hat. Jeb was strumming a tune on a banjo. A banjo, Billy Bob asked. What's that? Well, a banjo is a round instrument, Jeb said. With five sturdy strings, you can pluck it and strum it while you sing. 
Jeb said the banjo came to Appalachia a long time ago, and mountain folks got to strumming and putting on musical shows. But just then, Billy Bob heard a different kind of strumming, a choppy, woody, fine little tune. So he said to Jeb, I must go now, but I'll be back soon. So good. This is the best part of the job is listening to authors read their stuff. And you are very good at reading, Ronnie. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but you're also a senior, you know, entering your, your spring semester. What's What else is in the horizon for you? Well, I have a lot coming up. And I actually, my second book in my series will be releasing later this month. And the title is The Bunnyfield and McFluff Feud. And it's Billy Bob's tale of fighting families and friendship. And it's a humorous bunny version of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. And it's complete with a naughty pig that children can spot on each page. And again, all of the proceeds of this book will go to buying new books for children in Head Start. And particularly Mingo County in West Virginia, McDowell County in West Virginia, and Pike County in Kentucky, since this is the historic territory of the feud. Rania, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. Good luck in what you do next. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a dream come true to be on Inside Appalachia. That was Rania Zuri, senior at Morgantown High School, founder of the Literary Society, and author of its Mountain Music to My Ears, the first in a series of Appalachian-themed children's books. We'll put a link up on our page, wvpublic.org. We're big fans of reading here at Inside Appalachia. Our producer, Bill Lynch, volunteers to read each week to second and third graders at Malden Elementary. One of the books he reads to every class is The Princess in the Pickup Truck by longtime West Virginia Liars Contest champ Bill Lepp. He's won so much, apparently they don't even let him compete anymore. Here's Bill Lepp reading his story. Listen up, y'all. Once there was a prince. He was a mountain prince. He lived on a farm, on a grange, which is just an old word for farm, and I like to use it because then I can say he lived on a grange on a mountain range. And this particular prince wanted to marry a princess. But he didn't want to marry any princess. He wanted to marry a real mountain princess. The only trouble was there weren't any mountain princesses in the general vicinity. So he said to his mama, he lives with his mama, I think that explains some things, He said to his mama, Mama, I want to marry me a real mountain princess, but there ain't any princesses around here. So he set out, and he hiked the Himalayas, he cruised the Caucasus, he ascended the Alps and the Appalachians, he went to Glass Mountain to see if there was anybody with just one shoe, he went to the Sierras to see if there were any ladies in tiaras, and he met a lot of people who said they were princesses, but he wasn't sure they were real princesses, because let's face it, Princess costumes just aren't that expensive. So he went home and he said to his mama, he said, Mama, I couldn't find me any real mountain princesses. He said, I met a couple ladies who I think they were frauds. He said, now I kissed some of those frauds to see if they would turn into princesses. And his mama said, don't kiss frauds, you'll get warts. And that night there was a terrible storm. There was rain and wind and snow and thunder and lightning, a hurricane, a tidal wave, an earthquake. And in the midst of all of that, there was a knock on the door. And the prince went, and he opened the door. And because this is a story, there, on the stoop, stood three beautiful, prim, prime princesses. And he was so excited, until they said, trick or treat. And he was like, oh, shucks. But the next morning was a beautiful day. And the prince was out in the field doing some work, and he saw a woman coming down the road. Now, she had on a calico dress, her hair was a mess, and she was wearing hiking boots. But she said, howdy, I'm a real mountain princess. Now, he didn't know if she was a real mountain princess or not, because he didn't know if real princesses walked around in hiking boots, calico dresses with their hair in a mess, but she did have a sash that said mountain princess. So he thought maybe. And he took her home, and he introduced her to his mama. He said, mama, this here lady says she's a real mountain princess. Well, the mama wasn't sure either, so she took the son to the side and she said, we're just going to have to test her and find out. I want you to take 20 mattresses and pile them up on the back of your pickup truck. And when it comes time for bed, we'll have her sleep on those mattresses. And if she don't notice she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know she's a real mountain princess. 
And the prince said, okay, mama, I know we're brainstorming, so no bad ideas, but just a couple of things. First of all, we ain't got 20 mattresses. We got three mattresses, an air mattress, and one of them blow-up raft things. And the mama said, use what you got. And then the prince said, and mama, how is she not going to notice the pickup truck? He said, I bought that pickup truck specifically so princesses would notice me. And the mama said, how's that working out for you? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, dust ruffle. So they put a big sheet around the pickup truck. And that night, when it came time for bed, the prince said, well, I guess it's time for bed. Princess, let me show you where you'll be sleeping. He said, it's out the front door, uh, across the driveway, up this ladder, on top of this pile of mattresses. Nothing weird about that. So she climbed up, and she went to sleep. And when the princess was sound asleep, the mama gave the keys to the truck to the son, and she said, now, I want you to get in the truck, and I want you to drive. I want you to drive uphill. I want you to drive downhill. I want you to go on curvy roads. I want you to go on bumpy roads. And if she don't notice she's sleeping on a pickup truck, we'll know she's a real mountain princess. And the son said, okay, mama, just one problem with that. If I go down a bumpy road, she's going to fly off those mattresses, and she's going to splat and I don't want to marry a roadkill princess. And the mama thought about it for a second, and she said, clamp it, which is the best Beverly Hillbillies joke you're going to get all week. And she took a big ribbon, and she tied the princess to the top of the mattresses. And the prince got in the truck, and he drove uphill, and he drove downhill, and he went on curvy roads, and he went on bumpy roads, and then he put it in four-wheel drive so that he could ford a stream. He had to dodge a ram. He drove across the tundra, After a while, he pulled over to coma his hair. And when the princess didn't wake up and he started to get tired, he headed home because drowsy driving is dangerous driving. And when he got home, the princess was still snoring in a very unprincess-like manner. And he went in and he went to bed. And in the morning, he and his mama were eating breakfast. And the princess walked in and she said, Morning, how'd y'all sleep? And they said, We slept great, which was a lie because they didn't have any mattresses. But they said, how'd you sleep? And she said, best night of sleep I ever had in my life. Dreamt the whole night long that I was riding on a bucking bronco. And then they knew that she was a real mountain princess. And the prince and the princess got married, and they lived happily ever after. Sometimes in two-wheel drive, sometimes in four-wheel drive, but they always managed to thrive. The end. Coming up. It's been a struggle for some residents in eastern Kentucky to get help after last summer's historic flooding. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. Won't familiar sounds Won't familiar Over Christmas weekend, it got cold here in Appalachia got down to negative two at my house here on the Blue Ridge, with winds of 50 miles an hour or more. Places in North Carolina and Tennessee suffered rolling blackouts as the grid was strained. In Ohio and Pennsylvania, the holiday freeze jammed up rivers with ice. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel has this about the dangers of river ice and the need for ice spotters. Shannon Heffron is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Pittsburgh, a member of the hydrology team. I'm an ice jam uh, enthusiast, I guess you could say. So she's trying to get others as excited about ice jams as she is. Recently, she gave an online training about how volunteers can help her and other meteorologists keep an eye on conditions that could lead to them. Jams happen when chunks of ice clump together to block the flow of a river. The ice can act like a dam for water flowing behind it. And that could be hazardous. The flow of the water is going to pretty much lift all those ice chunks and just go out of its banks. So it can create significant flooding where communities need to be evacuated. Heffron says it can happen fast. The Pittsburgh office collaborates with the regional office in Ohio and the Army Corps of Engineers to put out daily river forecasts for the Ohio, Allegheny, Monongahela, and other river basins. Precipitation like rain or snowmelt goes into the forecast. But ice can interfere with gauges along the rivers. 
So the forecast sometimes doesn't reflect what's actually happening. The ice is unpredictable. That's why we want people to, to tell us what's happening. River ice spotters can help December through March, especially in places where ice often forms, like along the upper Allegheny River from near the National Forest down to Armstrong County. Heffern says ice spotting from the public is sporadic now, and they'd like to build a list of volunteers. We want to rely on them heavily. You know, all the reports we get there, we take them and we, we use them to make decisions. She says the National Weather Service's main focus is to protect life and property. River ice spotters help them to keep river communities and the barge industry informed. The Weather Service can issue a river ice statement when they know ice is building, or a flood watch or warning during a big thaw if people need to be evacuated or roads are closed. Heffron says anyone can be an ice spotter, and they just need really basic information from volunteers. You know, there's river ice here. This is what it looks like. It's this thick. And photos from up and downstream are helpful, too. One big thing you'll learn at river ice spotter training is the types of river ice. Sheet ice, which forms mostly on slower-moving rivers and reservoirs, and on faster-moving rivers, frazzle ice, which is like a slushy drink. It's ice nuclei that's suspended in the water, uh, so little ice particles in the water, and they might get caught up in an area and just bunch together, and that's kind of how you can create an ice jam. Safety is also key, most importantly. Do not stand on the ice. Just don't. Period. Observe river ice from the shore or a bridge and do it with a buddy if possible. In the training, Heffron teaches that jams typically form when there are consistent days of very cold temperatures and when the ice reaches four inches of thickness. She says they could use weekly reports when a cold front moves in, daily reports when ice is breaking up, or reports multiple times a day if it's flooding. Reports can be submitted through social media, email, or a form on the National Weather Service website. Heffron says every season is different. There was a freeze-up jam on the Allegheny during the December holiday freeze, but then it thawed out. Right now, looking at the outlook for the next few weeks, we don't see very prolonged periods of cold weather, so we're not seeing a potential for ice right now. Season's not over, though, so we want to still want to keep an eye on the rivers here. Shannon Heffron is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Pittsburgh. Their river ice spotter training is currently under videos on their Facebook page, and there's a link at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holsoffel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports regional environmental news. It's been five months since record flooding in eastern Kentucky. 43 people were killed, and the lives of thousands more were turned upside down. Communities continue to pick up the pieces, but volunteer help is dwindling. And now that we're deep into winter, some people are still displaced from their homes. Ohio Valley Resource reporter Katie Myers talked with some of the flood survivors. On the outside, it looks like an ordinary shed. Inside, neighbors catch up while they look through piles of toiletries, diapers, and toys. There are some people getting in their homes and a lot of them need supplies. There's a makeshift office where Donna Rourke works. She lives next door, and she's kept the shed open because the needs keep coming, keep changing, as people rebuild. And every day, people bring stuff in. The people, not the officials, not anybody else. It's just the people. Rourke calls it the people's building. There's federal and state money committed to the region, but it can be confusing and difficult to navigate getting money in hand. Rourke doesn't have a lot of faith in these institutions. What she sees most is regular people stretching their own resources to help out. All the money that was donated and appropriated for the people, they haven't seen it. That's life in eastern Kentucky right now. A limbo. A holding pattern. Even for those who still have their houses, the cold brings urgency. The money they cobbled together can't cover everything. It's being smushed and everybody's like on top of everybody. Rosa Foss came to the People's Building from her temporary state camper on Carfork Lake. She lives there with her husband and two daughters. She needed to stretch her legs a little. Mom, I'll give her no. And she brought her youngest, Molly, with her. It was okay during the summertime because they would get out and ride their bikes and stuff. But now that they're in the house, they're right together. Molly is outgoing and sweet. She runs around the shed, not always staying out of trouble. But when they're alone, Foss says she gets sad. She was telling me this morning she just wants to go back home. 
About 25 minutes drive away, Janice's niece lives on a steep hill above a gully with a creek running through it. Her dad, brother, and husband are all buried there next to each other, and someday she will be too. After the flood, the hill began to give. She keeps a nervous watch on it through the pouring rain. Once the ground freezes and it thaws back out, it's just going to cause it to sink more. She's not worried about the house falling off the hill. It's the graves. I don't even know if I'm going to have enough money to even fix all this, to be honest. It needs to be fixed, I do know that, because the dead's resting in peace. She finally found contractors after five months, but they can't come quick enough. This whole ordeal's been stress. Tommy Newhouse lives in Topmost, in Knott County. It's one of the hardest-hit communities, and it's still pretty wrecked. The flood broke the bridge that connects his house to the main road. Dealing with FEMA has been nothing but stress. Newhouse is on disability. Outside of his family home, he doesn't have a lot of money or assets. He felt powerless this fall, spending hours on hold with every authority he could think of. They didn't care you was in a disaster. They didn't care that your world got turned upside down. It was like, you ain't got the paperwork? Who cares? After numerous FEMA appeals, he finally found someone to fix the bridge. It's a slow but significant step forward. You! I said you! You're a lot of trouble. In the Millstone Missionary Baptist Church, the church ladies cooked Christmas dinner. Ham, green beans, enough mashed potatoes to feed a mob. <laughs> Billy June Richardson, the pastor's daughter, came to help. It was the church's first Christmas dinner since before COVID. And they're cooking and we'll have people come in from everywhere with food and it'll, it'll be a nice night. Most days, she drives around Millstone trying to connect people with resources. I get calls. Can you send me an electrician? Can you send me a plumber? Can you send me some help? So. The holiday season wasn't all cheer. Further extreme weather came in the form of a severe Christmas weekend cold snap, which froze water lines and burst pipes all over eastern Kentucky. Richardson fielded calls for help from flood survivors. Pipes burst in trailers and people were cold. She says folks are tired of being resilient. And it's feeling like, as usual, it's the neighbors who are going to come through in the end. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, abortion is illegal in West Virginia. Now, state lawmakers are considering legislation to fund so-called pregnancy help organizations, which encourage women to give birth in the case of an unplanned pregnancy. The lawmakers working on the bill declined to comment, but reporter Chris Schultz spoke with Margaret Pomponio, the CEO of West Virginia Free. Margaret, in the state of the state address, Governor Jim Justice pledged $1 million for crisis pregnancy centers. The term that the House is using in Bill 2002 is pregnancy support organizations. But what exactly do you understand these places to be? Well, West Virginia Free fully supports support for pregnant people. Um, you know, as a mom myself, I know how important it is to get the care that you need for both yourself and your children, your baby. And we think there are a lot of things that the legislature could do and the governor could do rather than funneling money into these so-called pregnancy care organizations. We're very concerned about them because there's no accountability in the funding. They're not medical facilities, they're not regulated, and they're not even regulated by HIPAA. So we're looking at agencies that, you know, we'd be creating new infrastructure um, for when we already have good programs in West Virginia that are deserving of funding and more funding, you know, like Birth to Three, Family Planning Program, on and on. So help me understand, you know, if these are not medical centers, if these are not providing licensed medical aid to pregnant people, what are these places doing? Well, most of these are actually Christian-affiliated organizations. They're not, again, they're not healthcare facilities. And they have popped up to try to dissuade someone from seeking abortion care. And now we all know that abortion is illegal in West Virginia now. And so it's curious to us that the legislature is continuing to focus on abortion. You know, abortion is written into this bill also. Any organization that would get state support wouldn't even be able to say the word abortion. We, we have concerns about free speech issues there, but it also really lifts up the fact that many in the legislature seem to be obsessed with abortion, and that is not serving our people. People need health care, and they need honesty and transparency. 
I do want to talk about the continuing discussion about abortion in just a moment, but you talk about you know the need for health care in this state. The state is facing, facing excuse me, a shortage of obstetricians, and even accessing the existing care that is already in the state is extremely difficult for a lot of people, especially in rural areas. What I'm curious is, you know, our reproductive health care system does need help right now. Where does this plan fall short of that need? Well, I'm glad you lifted up the shortage of OBGYNs, and certainly the ban on abortion is going to further drive them out of state, and it's also going to disincentivize OBGYNs from locating here, really contributing to our already vast maternity deserts. And so we would like to see that addressed. You know, the, the legislature could establish funding to help rural areas recruit OBGYNs to try to offset the damaging effects of the abortion ban that took away providers' ability to provide the care that they think is best for their patient. So going back to what you said uh, just a moment ago, House Resolution 301, which was taken up earlier this week, states that the criminalization of abortion must be only the beginning of West Virginia's post-Roe initiatives. On the other side, the Senate is considering a bill that's targeting chemical or drug-induced abortions. As an advocate of reproductive health, what do you realistically, what would you realistically like to see happen in this session? Well, I think at a minimum, they ought to ramp up funding for our state family planning program that's housed at DHHR. We have a good family planning program and and a lot of clinics around the state, but they're underfunded. You know, their hours of operation are short, making it hard for working people to get there, you know, during the open hours. And also we really need to advertise their services more. You know, that'll help reduce unintended pregnancy. Um, we should all be on board with that. So we'd like to see more support for that. We'd like the maternity care deserts addressed to try to offset the ban again. And then more, well, not more, we need paid family leave. You know, that resolution that was passed in tandem with the ban really should say to people that the legislature supports families. And if they support families, they need to enable workers to take care of a sick child or have some time off to care for a baby after birth. So, Margaret, I use the qualifier realistic. Uh, in, in a perfect scenario, what would you like to see the legislature do? Well, I think that it might be a heavier lift to really address the maternity care deserts. So realistically, they could do a study resolution and really study it in you know the months to come and make some sort of meaningful policy after they understand the problem more. We would love to see birth workers uh, more accessible, so doulas. You know, the March of Dimes says that having a pregnancy support person like a doula really improves birth outcomes and the health of the mother. So we would love to see Medicaid reimbursement for that as well. But we also recognize that a lot of legislators don't know what doulas are. A lot of the public, that's D-O-U-L-A, doula. Um, I encourage people to look it up and learn more. I had a doula after the birth of my twins, and it was transformational. That was Margaret Pomponia from West Virginia Free, speaking with reporter Chris Schultz. Appalachians love telling stories. Lies, yarns, and good old-fashioned tall tales. In fact, the International Storytelling Center is based in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And just across the state line in Asheville, North Carolina, a young family is cultivating another place for people to gather to share stories. Matt Pikin at Blue Ridge Public Radio reports. The prologue is set in Austin, Texas, Erin Halligan Clare and her husband have a very young son and another on the way when the pandemic hits. They decide to move. And then similar to kind of that move to Austin, you know, what's next? What's the next adventure? And let's go do the next thing. 
That next big thing is Asheville. They don't have personal connections, but Claire brings with her a long-time dream, opening a dependable space dedicated to storytelling. Um, there's power in community, there's power in connection, and all of us just being here in this room together is powerful. Flash forward in the story to a Friday night this past month. Claire is welcoming another cozy crowd to Story Parlor in West Asheville. Thank you. Um, give yourselves all a round of applause. Claire's story is really a doorway for others in and around Asheville to tell their stories. They are performers in film, poetry, music, comedy, dance, and yes, literature. In your film, or in your poem, or in your comedy piece, it's relaying a story. That story is being informed in some way, shape, or form from your personal narrative, right? And so your worldview and your experiences and the stories that have shaped your perception in your life are ultimately feeding into the work that you're producing or contributing to. Story kind of serves as a container for all of that. And even though process and technique is so wildly different from one to the other, that connection between other artists, I think, is really powerful and have that kind of glue between the creatives amongst us. Claire opened Story Parlor last spring as a handful of other venues closed, including Ambrose West, a music venue which was just around the corner on Haywood Road. The Story Parlor building is an unlikely home for performance. It's taller than it is wide. No more than a few people can stand on stage at the same time. Capacity is only 49, and that includes the front row of a balcony hovering above the stage. The capacity is one of the downsides, I think, but also it's one of the things that makes it special. Tim Hearn is the founder of Speakeasy Improv and a member of the Story Parlor Co-op. After looking for a permanent home, he's now holding improv classes twice a week, a monthly improv jam, and a monthly curated performance at Story Parlor. It is like a little home living room meets a cathedral, somewhat dimly lit. It doesn't have a lot of high-tech stuff. And I think that's what we are trying to create as a community as well that doesn't necessarily have a lot of flash, but it does have authenticity. Claire developed the concept in Austin, debuting what she called Story Bar in 2015. She staged evenings wherever she could. Claire said she and her husband left Austin in part because of rising and unpredictable rents. In Asheville, they were eating at Taco Billy when they noticed a nearby building for sale. Money they scraped together from Story Bar went to the down payment. It's just been really like one step in front of the other, one deep breath after the other to make it work. And I keep looking back at why we didn't have the space work out in Austin. And it's very clear to me now that it's because it was always supposed to be here. And the community that's rallied around it and that has really kind of helped make this doable, you know, in all of the ways has been nothing short of outstanding. That community has come through in a big way over the past couple weeks. People have donated more than $7,200 to date to a GoFundMe campaign to cover damages and lost cash from a break-in earlier this month. And people are also supporting the Story Parlor programming. The next Story Mixer, January 20th, is already sold out. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News. For more about the Story Parlor, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And heads up, the International Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, is set to take place this year, October 6 to 8. Helping aging parents can involve a lot more than getting them to the doctor, church, and the grocery store. It might mean managing their checkbook, their bills, and their treatment. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas has been exploring caregiving in the series Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. He recently spoke with Frankie Parsons, a lawyer who specializes in legal and estate planning. What does it take or what, what condition does a person have to be in to qualify or, or where, where the family starts thinking about we need to establish a guardianship for the for the. My clients who come to me nine times out of ten have an adult parent 
who is showing, I mean, outward signs of diminished capacity. And are were you talking physically, physical capacity or mental capacity? Having diminished physical capacity, meaning you're having a hard time getting around, is not criteria to have a guardianship. Okay. okay. We are dealing with people who can no longer make day-to-day basic decisions for themselves. Right. Okay. How does that process start? You, you say mom's not doing well. She, you know, she can't handle her own checkbook anymore. Um, do I call an attorney first? Do I call the doctor? I mean, where, where do you get started in that process? Normally what I'm dealing with is a, an adult child who comes to me and says, my mom is not doing well and you know, outlines the ins and outs of what's going wrong. Now, what we will need as part of this proceeding is an affidavit from a physician outlining the okay. mental condition. So at some point, a doctor is going to need to be involved. You can't just come to me irritated with your mom and say, I need to be her guardian. That's not how it works. We need a physician's documentation that there is, in fact, uh, you know, a diminished mental capacity or some type of issue. I assume then we're, we're going before a judge or of some sort? You'll complete the petition, and it's basic information, the person's name, address, age, and then what we call in the code interested parties. So that would be, let's say you have three brothers and sisters. All of the children of that person would be listed, and the code prescribes if you don't have kids, you know, who we go down the line of who should be notified as an interested person. Official notice goes out that way. Now, each county does this differently. In Kanawha County, I, I as the attorney, would handle that. Um, I, truthfully, I don't know what, what pro se petitioners would do in Kanawha County. I'm assuming they would handle that on their own. I don't think the court would take up that ball for them <laughs> for not having a lawyer. Uh, and at that point, anybody – there will be a period after that until the hearing is scheduled. So – it goes in front of a mental hygiene commissioner. Anybody in this period of time can file a response, an objection. If So there, there are several steps and safeguards that we are not violating someone's due process or their legal rights of any variety by just assigning them a guardian. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. There's, yeah, This isn't just, oh, I'm going to take over my mom's estate and, no. and I'm going to start whip out her paycheck or her checkbook and start writing checks. There's, there's a number of steps. And this isn't something that happens overnight either. I assume this probably takes a couple months by the time it's all said and done. Usually. Yeah. I mean, it's not as long as other legal processes that I'm involved in, but yeah, it's, it's usually from start to finish two to three months, depending on if I'm waiting on that physician's affidavit, sometimes takes a while. Doctors are very busy. Once you have all the information, it, the courts handle those fairly quickly. Okay. What haven't we talked about? One thing I do want to say that I think people in general need to hear. People will come in and sit down in my office with me and say, I am so embarrassed to tell you this. D- don't. Don't. Because number one, that's what we're there for, is to help you through situations that require a legal navigator. Number two, you would have no reason to know how to do a lot of these things if you have never encountered a need, uh, an elderly parent before, you know, that you're segueing into this part of your life where your parents now need to be parented. If you've never been there before and you're not a lawyer, you wouldn't know what to do. Sure. So there's no shame in not knowing. There is no shame in, you know, I need to go through this process and need the help of an attorney. There's no shame in that at all. You have no reason to know what I know because I do it for 10 hours every day So, or, or manage these cases for 10 hours every day. That was Frankie Parsons speaking with Eric Douglas about legal aspects of caring for older adults. You can find more of the series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, at wvpublic.org. Moorfield, West Virginia is home to about 3,300 people. About one in 10 are immigrants. That includes a small community from Eritrea and Ethiopia. Many work at the chicken processing plant in town, Pilgrim's Pride. The hours are long. They don't leave much time for socializing. 
Still, members of that East African community continue to practice a tradition they've brought from home, the coffee ceremony. Let's listen back to this story from 2021, made by Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett, with help from former West Virginia state folklorist Emily Hilliard. In a small apartment in Moorfield, a woman sits on a short stool, roasting green coffee beans on a single burner electric stove. She wears a floral dress and a wooden cross around her neck. Um, my name is Traha Silo. I come from Eritrea. I'm living in Moorfield, West Virginia. It's a Sunday, Trihas's day off, and she's hosting a coffee ceremony for a room full of people. She sits apart from the guests at a low table used to prepare the coffee. On the floor beneath her is a green mat, decorated with strips of plastic that look like grass. It just makes it look like special and like respectful, you know. Trihas is still learning English, so her teenage son helps with translation. It makes it look like as if you were like welcoming the guests like in a very welcoming way. Three paper plates are lined up on the mat, each filled with a different colorful snack. This one is candy. This one is for African... Incense and candles perfume the air, along with the smell of roasting coffee beans. Women typically perform the ceremony, It can take up to two hours and involves multiple steps, from roasting the green beans to serving fresh coffee to each guest. You blend the coffee. Uh, After you blend it and you put water in that little jar thing, that here, jabana, it's called jabana. That's Azib Makonan, another East African immigrant, explaining the ritual. Uh, Some people love to put ginger in it like she did, and uh, some people don't like Coffee ceremonies aren't just for special occasions. Among family and friends, it's a common pastime to make coffee, listen to music, and just enjoy each other's company. You cannot just make coffee by, like, by yourself like this. You call people. That's how it's fun. Like, you communicate, you talk. Azib tells me the tradition is passed down by family matriarchs. Because my mom learned it from, from my grandmother, and my grandmother learned it from her mom. Hundreds, years, hundreds and hundreds years ago. Trihas's 14-year-old daughter started to learn how to make coffee a couple years ago, even though she's lived most of her life in the U.S. I just watched my mom do it, and I just learned from it and just do it myself. Now, every evening, she makes coffee for her parents before they work the night shift. I mean, yeah, it's our culture, like, that's what we do, so I just want to learn it and see how we do it. Before coming here, Trihas and her family lived in a rural part of Eritrea, farming vegetables. About 10 years ago, they decided to leave their home and immigrate to the United States. Here's Trihas's son. We wanted to have a better life, better freedom, and my dad was the first one to come here. Trihas stayed behind with their children until her husband got settled. Their migration process was long and difficult. But after five years of separation, the family was reunited in the U.S. Now they're all in Moorfield. It's good and free, and it's also like free violence. It's all safe here. Trihas and her husband both work at the Pilgrim plant. Her job is to cut and debone chickens. She says it's hard work, and even harder because most people around her speak English. She's told me this. Whenever you go to work, you struggle with English. A lot. Even out of work, out of your house, you go somewhere, you struggle. Trihas hopes that learning English will make her life easier. So after each night shift, she comes home, showers, and goes directly to a 9 a.m. English class. So for example, the first one, this is how we would put together the sentence. He has That's how you're going to put together the sentence. Trihas says it's hard to make friends with native English speakers, but the classes offer a chance to build community with other immigrants. So my mom, like literally everybody that goes in that class is her friend right now. They've even done coffee ceremonies together as a class. There's already sugar in it. Yeah. Once the beans are roasted and the coffee has been brewed, Trihas moves around the room with her coffee pot, serving each guest. She pours the coffee from a pie into little espresso-like cups. The sugar. See the sugar? Yeah, you're going to stir it like this. 
The coffee ceremony also plays an important part in maintaining social ties within their East African community in Moorfield, where, Azib says, there aren't many outlets for leisure activities. Basically just work and just come home, spend out your time with your family, and doing the same thing every week, work and the same thing. For Trihas, who comes from a small village, rural life hasn't been such a big adjustment. But Azib is from the capital city of Ethiopia, and she lived in Atlanta, Georgia, before coming to Moorfield. Maybe you go Walmart. What can you go? Maybe you go somewhere in Ponderosa or somewhere here, you know. When she gets the chance, she goes over the mountain to larger cities in Virginia, like Winchester and Harrisonburg, where she can find ingredients from East Africa, like green coffee beans. She says the coffee ceremony helps alleviate some of the boredom. Like get together like this, make coffee. I love that. You can just put it right here. How do you say thank you? I'm In Ethiopia, I'm a Saganello. In my country, Yaganele. Thank you. I'm a Saganello. The coffee is strong and sweet. It tastes of cardamom, cinnamon, and ginger, which Trihas ground and stirred together with the beans. Azib says when they do the coffee ceremony, We feel like we are back home. You think you are back there still, your mind go back there. The living room is full of guests and conversation, fueled by coffee and the warmth of hospitality. On Monday, most of them will be back at work, cleaning and deboning chickens. But for this hour or two, they're back home, sharing coffee with their community and their new friends in the United States. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Emily Hilliard also helped produce that story. It's part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see and hear more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And check out Emily's book, Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia. It's fantastic and a must-read for anyone interested in Appalachian folk life. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the company stores, Hillbilly Gypsies, Watch House, Long Point String Band, and Ona. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.